So there's going to be a literary veneer to this year. I'm going to start off with a literary question, and it's, <laughs> it's possible that at the end the um, the issue will address will give us a um, will give us a literary solution. But I want to be upfront that the core of this year uh, is not a is not a literary shear about Hamash. It's an attempt to read um, to read Ramban and to understand how Ramban reads how Ramban how Ramban reads Hamash. Um, and I want to be clear also that I am wholly incompetent at reading Ramban and Hamash, especially when, as here, he wanders off into the Kabbalistic ether. Um, so there's going to be a caveat to everything that I'm building a whole shear around something that I'm that I'm upfront. I'll tell you upfront that I'm not at all sure. Uh, even if I'm right about everything, I understand anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just tell you that. We just tell you that up front. Let me pass, pass this back. Uh, okay. Secondly, um, okay. So I need to give you, I need to give you one, um, one broad methodological introduction about the nature of metaphor, and then a second introduction about a machloket Rashi and Ramban that's not actually on the Makara set. And then we'll have all this whole giant framing, which you can then forget about entirely while we go through Ramban. And at the end, hopefully, we'll have timed it right. Just, to, just about towards the end of the share, we'll say, well, if you've been convinced by all this in Ramban, so that will give you an approach to all the, uh, all the broader questions we asked at, at the outset. So here's the question I want to talk about metaphor. Is There is a, a famous line that probably many of you heard in the course of education. It's called, Ein mikra yotzei pshuto. Right? The Torah does not leave the, the boundaries of its shot. Now, what does that mean? Anyway, someone tell me what you think that means. Amy Kraya Tsemi Dei Chuto. People have been here before to scare you. You know, the first answer is always the wrong answer. Ah, so that's uh, this we call it. You're using the word shot again. <laughs> All right. Okay, good. So that thank you. You're given the answer that people will know is the right. I don't like the word plain meaning for shot, and and I said it and I set it up so because it doesn't mean that. So you should know it. Right? Thank you for being the victim. <laughs> yes. Don't get too carried away with the midrashim like what's the detection. Right. Exactly right. So that is so that is what we call a carried away midrashic reading of a of a rabbinic statement, which means nothing of the sort at all. What the Inukrali say the in the Talmud occurs in a very specific context. Um, the question is whether a um, whether you are uh, whether men are allowed to wear ceremonial swords in the street on Shabbat. Okay, right. The question is whether if you wear a ceremonial sword, are you wearing it or are you carrying it? Now we resolve this because there is a verse which refers to people going out wearing swords, right? Right? Um, right? Right? That is the the glory of men to wear swords in the street. And there is a question. The question is. One person says, but that's not talking about real swords. It's talking about metaphorical swords. When I saw about the sword of Torah that Talmud Yechachamim wear when they go out, right, when they go out to battle. Right? But actually, if you really wear a sword, if you really wear a sword, that's clothing. Sorry, that's not clothing. That's carry, right? You carry swords. You don't wear swords. And the other person says, no. That when you use something as a metaphor, the original meaning has to be true also. It has nothing to do with plain meaning. It has nothing to do with fancy. Right? The pshat is the literal meaning of a text which is, independent, which is intended metaphorically. And the reason I like to use this is because the pshat is not what the text means. What the text means is the metaphor. Everyone understands that the pasuk is talking about Torah. 
The question is when the pasuk uses real swords as a metaphor for right for intellectual swords, does that mean that it also has to be true of, of real swords? Right, the pshat is the possible second meaning. Right, everyone agrees it's not the meaning. Okay, that's the first thing. Now the question is: Is this true of all metaphors in the Klayot Semidei Pshuto? So I'll give you right, another really interesting example. It shows up a lot, which is Umal Talmud or Lot and I will circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Now, does that mean that hearts really have foreskin? It's a metaphor, but it's a more complicated metaphor. It's, it's translating a metaphor, right? A, met, a metaphor from circumcision of genitalia. It's a metaphor of circumcision of, right, of cardiac tissue. Now, what would it mean to say Right? When God says, right? So here we have to be very careful because sometimes, right? Some, first of all, it's a machloket, whether it's true that the literal meaning of a metaphor has to be true also. And secondly, even if you accept it as a given that we have a bias towards saying there are limits. Right? It's not always the case that the metaphor, right, that the, that the, metaphor is, the metaphor is literally true in addition to being a metaphor, because you have a mixed metaphor, right? Like an orlat lev. An orlat lev is a mixed is a mixed metaphor because the lev doesn't really have an orlat. Okay, that's the first thing I want you to get. So when we talk about a text, and the question of in the text is, right, somebody understands something metaphorically, that leaves us with the question: If you understand it metaphorically, does that mean that it's not real? It's only a metaphor. Or do you say in the Krayosevitrito, it of course it's real. And it's the very reality of it that functions as a metaphor. I'll give you the counterexample. The counterexample is Shirashirim. So Shirashirim, religiously, is a metaphor about the relationship between whoever you are. Let's say God and the Jewish people. It only works because men and women fall in love with each other. If men and women didn't fall in love with each other, Shirashirim would be a useless metaphor. Right, so what, right? right, right, right it's, only, it's only viable because it takes something that is true in our experience and applies it to something that we don't have direct experience of necessarily. Right, so that's the case where it's clear the metaphor has to, right, that obviously in the Kriyoseidetrito, if Shira Shirim is an unconvincing love story, then it is a useless metaphor. And that's important because people always debate, right, about Shira Shirim. Is it a love song or is it not? Well, the answer is you shouldn't be able to tell. Right, based on the narrative, because if it's not a good love story, then it's not a useful religious metaphor. And if it's a useful religious metaphor, then it is a good metaphor. There are other ways to tell whether Shira Shirim is intended metaphorically. Uh, my favorite example is that um, you know that the uh, that people are constantly swearing by the deer and the and the uh, rams of the field, right? Now, why do they swear by the deers and the rams of the field? Because they're swearing by the tzaot and the and the elim. And the, and the elod, right? So, so all the, the animal metaphors in O's are all names of God. Coincidentally. Right? So I tend to think that's a pretty good evidence, right, that the story is supposed to be read on two levels, right? That, of course, it could always be an anti-religious satire. Uh, but it seems to me, right, but it seems to me much, much simpler to say that, um, that you can tell that Shir Hashem is a metaphor because the puns are there constantly to tell, are, to remind you of the religious dimension. But, um, but, the meta- but it has to be real or it's not a useful metaphor. Okay, that's long introduction number one. Okay, long, intru- uh, long introduction number two. Um, is Rashi famously opens his commentary on Sumash by saying, why do we need this whole creation story anyway? The Torah, right? Why doesn't the Torah start somewhere else? Um, seemingly he suggests we should start at HaChodesh HaZelachem. Why do we need creation? And Rashi answers that we, um, that we need creation because in case the nations of the world come and say, hey, you stole Eretz Yisrael, 
we say to them, we didn't steal Eretz Yisrael, God made the world, he can give Eretz Yisrael to whomever he wants. Now this is a very interesting position that always bothered me, because it seems to suggest that there is no right and wrong, ultimately. Right? Just God can do whatever he wants. So he gives you the land, he takes away, he gives you the land, right? And we are all just subject to God's whims. Right? That's one way of reading it. Now Ramban takes on this Rashi, and he says, first of all, what on earth are you talking about, Rashi? Of course everything in Kumash is intrinsically necessary. But then he has a fascinating claim. He says, what creation is necessary is because it's really important to understand how the world was created. But the way, in order to really understand how the world was created, Kumash doesn't help you any, because for that you need to know Kabbalah. So, Rashi's wrong that we don't need to know the story, but he's right that if, if what we needed to know was the creation story, Kumash wouldn't help us at all. So, Zaraman so gives a different version of Rashi's answer, which is fascinating. He says that if you want to understand what goes on in Bereshus, you have to realize that the story of Bereshus is that you have to deserve land. Exactly the opposite of Rashi. Rashi says that the answer to the question, why does the Torah start with, cre- with creation, is to tell you that God can give land to whomever he wants, and there is no issue of right and wrong. Ramban says the whole narrative of Bereshus is about how God gives you land, and then you sin. So you get exiled. And he gives you different lands. You get right, yeah. and then you sit, and then you get exiled, right? So you get kicked out of Gan Eden, and then you get kicked out, right? Then you have to move, move further east, and you have to, you get kicked out of, of the of the Bika of the Bika and you have to spread across the world, and that, right? And then, and then eventually you settle in Eretz Canaan, and then you sin, and you get kicked out of Eretz Canaan, and the right, and other people replace you. All right, so for so for Ramban, the Ramban, the answer. To the question, you still Irish Israel is? No, we didn't see Irish Israel. You lost it. Yeah. And, right? You lost it because you stopped deserving it. Mm-hmm. And wholly different. Wholly different perception. Ramban says that's the framing. That's really what goes on in Sefer Breshit. Okay, those are our two introductions, nature of metaphor and the way in which Ramban understands the narrative of Breshit. Now we're going to ask uh, our literary question, which is the title, which is, why does Kumash end where it does? If you were writing, right, if, you know, if you were, design, if you were directing the movie, if you were writing the book, so you know this is a very unsatisfying place to end. Yeah. Right? It should end when we come in Derek Israel. You'll tell me it couldn't end. It couldn't end then because really you're right. That's where the book should end. But Chumash has to be written by Moshe Rabbeinu, so you can't possibly have information in it about Moshe Rabbeinu, right? That right that takes place after his death. But Moshe Rabbeinu's death. <laughs> takes place in the Kumash. And we said Yoshua write the last eight Sukim. Yoshua could have written the last nine Sukim. <laughs> right? And then, right? And then, and then they cross the yard and they say, put Eretz Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu having died, and Kumash ends. <laughs> right? So, right? So, it's not enough, to, so that's not a good enough explanation. So you have to understand why, right? Why does Kumash choose to end? Right? At the moment before they enter Eretz Yisrael, when that obviously is an unsatisfying ending. Right? If you're there and you see it in the movie, you say, oh, they're setting up the sequel. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? That was, so, but, but somebody doesn't have a sequel, right? At least, you know, it doesn't have an author right. right? It, has, right there, it has the spin-off, right? It's the spin-off television series. <laughs> but that's really, really cynical to think, right? Like, God's setting up Nach, right? That's why, that's why he leaves Kumash. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leaves Kumash unfinished. I think that we're supposed to understand Kumash as, a, as, as it is. So that's my literary question. Why, why does Kumash end that way? Uh, so now you have three things to keep in mind. Right, we have the Ramban's understanding of the beginning of Kumash. 
We have my question about the end of Chumash, and we have our overarching issue about the nature of metaphor. And with that, we're going to start learning Ramban. So if you open the beginning of the packet, you can tell the beginning of the packet because it has the cool logo uh, of the institution that you should all look up afterwards and take the propaganda from on this page, etc. Uh, on, on the table, etc. So the, um, there is a, we'll, start, we'll start with the Sifri. Okay, Sifri says that beloved is Israel because God has surrounded them with mitzvot. Now, this is written in a pre-20th century age, and so it doesn't notice that all the mitzvot are only applied to men. Uh, right, so the mitzvot are, the mitzvot are tefillin, uh, what's not mezuzah, right, tefillin mezuzah, tefillin mezuzah and tzitzit, and it continues being highly gendered, and we're going to, if you apologize, we're going to ignore all modern gender issues in the course of this, of this shir. We can take the most, there are many other shir I give about that, but this shir we're going to have to ignore that. We're going to be medieval. Okay, so what is, what does this compare to? Mashal. To a flesh and blood king who said to his wife, um, I want you to adorn yourself with all your tachshitim. I want you to dress up and put on all your jewelry. Because I want you to be appealing to me. Okay? So that's why I want you to fully say. Now remember, mitzvot are, right, mitzvot are the thing that's around you. Okay, so that we could have fun talking about the gender because it's the king and his wife and the whole Jewish people, especially the men who put on tefillin and succeed, are now playing the fem- right, are now playing the, the female role. We're not going to go there now, right? But, right so, but the point is that the Jewish people as a whole are supposed to do mitzvot because that is a way of making them attractive to God. Right, that's what mitzvot are. They're a way of making ourselves appealing to God. Okay, that's fine. We're not going to go there actually very deeply because I'm really interested in the next history. The next Sifri says, right, just talking in the middle of the, um, the, the promises of destruction for disobedience. So here we say, ah, um, right, so that we have this consecutive um, thing. First, you'll be destroyed, and you should put these words on my heart. Now, the simplest meaning is, put the, right, is that these are not sequential. Right, it's you'll be destroyed, therefore put these, this warning on your heart so you won't be destroyed. But the Sifri reads it as, even after you have been destroyed and exiled, you should still put these words. Um, right? And it leads, and leads into Tefillin. Right? So you should keep on doing these adornments, and Tefillin are constantly compared to right, the jewelry. So you should keep on putting, right? so the Nedr says you should keep on putting your jewelry even after you've been exiled. Now this is the question. What is the point of putting on jewelry when you're not going to see the king. Right? This is the equivalent of a command in a divorce agreement. Right? I want you to get dressed, but I never want to see you again. <laughs> ah, okay, very good. Right? So, right? so it, it seems to suggest that there is a hope of reconciliation. But now, if I were playing this out for you, right? if I say, right, if we're having a separation agreement, and it says in a separation agreement, right, but you agree to put on your, right, to put on your rings and, and, uh, and your necklace every day, so you would, you would expect it to say, because maybe I'll pass you on the street and see you. Right? That's a, right? That would be the hope of reconciliation. Now let's take a look at what the Midrash actually says. The Midrash actually says, um, right, so it's, Even though I'm kicking you out of Eretz Israel into exile, You should be distinguished with mitzvot. Um, right, you all know that mitzvot doesn't mean superb and excellent. It means distinguished. Um, right? When we read in the Gadah, it doesn't mean they were excellent there. It means they were distinguished. Right? They were distinguished there. Mm-hmm. Um, that when you return, 
Lo yehu aleichem chadashim. They shouldn't be new to you. They won't, they won't be new upon you. And spell it out. Mashal amelech basavadam shaka'as alishto v'tarfa b'vetaviyah. This is, this is related to a flesh and blood king who got angry at his wife and kicked her out back to her father's house. Amarla, but he said, in the separation agreement, Hevimit kushetet v'tach shiteich, wear your jewelry, shekishetach zuri lo yuolechet kechadashim. So that when you come back, you won't have lost your, your, your comfort in uh, wearing heels. <laughs> right, that's right. That's that's probably right, that's probably the best way, the best way that you can, uh, the best way that you can frame it. Don't let the the um, the holes in your earlobe seal up. Right, you have to. Right, you have to yeah. So this is right. This is a whole right. This is a wholly different thing. It's not what we expect at all. Right, you have to right, so that when you come back, it won't be hard to put the jewelry back on again. And we put, spell it out. That's what God said to the Jews. Why should we keep mitzvot? So that when you return to Eretz Yisrael, you won't be unused to doing mitzvot. So it's not we do mitzvot in the hopes that we will reconcile with God. We do mitzvot because it, there is a presumption that we will eventually reconcile with God. And when we reconcile with God, we should be in the habit of doing mitzvot. Now, Yes, it's a more positive statement about the reconciliation, but it's a very odd statement about mitzvot. Mm-hmm. Right? Why are we doing mitzvot? We're doing mitzvot because right, it's training, right, training pierce, uh, pierce hearing. Well, if we're doing mitzvot, we wouldn't have been picked up to begin with. So well, if, if why would we continue to do them? We were doing them, and we were picked up. That's a good point. That's a good question. But the answer is we did some mitzvot, but we probably did some horrible things also. Mm-hmm. Right? So, right, so we, we could just keep doing this note. Maybe we... Kept all the ritual, kept all the ritual mitzvot, but at the same time we oppressed the poor and murdered, and murdered the weak and all things like that. Um, we shouldn't despair of doing mitzvot, but it, but it takes all the point out of it. Right? If we're just doing it, so if you turn the page, Rabbi Michael Sid was a, who was a Rami Yeshivat, maybe he's a minister Yeshivat I met him, I met him once, I had a great time with him. Um, so he gave, a, he gave, I thought, a very a very good presentation of the way this is usually presented. And I always think there's great value in presenting things the way they're usually presented, and then, but I only give the share up when I think that the way they're usually presented is wrong. <laughs> so we're going right, so to go through an excellent presentation of the, standard, of, of, the standard, of the standard way of doing this, and then we'll talk about whether we think that this is compelling or not. So he, I very soon has this great title called Practicing Jew. So practice, practice. so practice meaning, right, the, the, what he's telling you is that this is the general understanding of Ramban, or of, the, of this, of, based on the Sifri, which is that, why do we do mitzvot and chutzpah For practice. Right, so he tells you he walked into a shul in Yerushalayim, and uh, he's greeted by a friendly older gentleman, and the friendly older gentleman says to him, so you're a practicing Jew. And what he meant by you're a practicing Jew is, oh, so you live in chutzpah Because if you live in the diaspora, your mitzvot are only for practice. Welcome to Israel, where you can do them for real. Mm-hmm. Right, that was the right, and uh, so he says. Right, I was shocked and insulted that someone would have the audacity to suggest that what I had done in Chutzlaret did not really count, and I was extremely confident that the older gentleman was mistaken. After all, the Mishnah Kedushin states explicitly that non-agricultural mitzvot apply outside of Eretz Israel. Right, Kol mitzvah she not tuliyah ba'aretz, no heged bein ba'aretz, bein the bein the Okay, and he quotes our Sifri. 
Um, right? And it's a free derived, he says, based on the juxtaposition of Tupsukim, that we must fulfill Mitzvot and Chutzpah Aretz as well. And he quotes you to Ashut Radbaz. But at the same time, he says, the Sifri makes it clear that performing Mitzvot and Chutzpah Aretz is a preparation for doing Mitzvot in Eretz Yisrael. Even Mitzvot that apply in Chutzpah Aretz are meant as preparations for our being able to, uh, to perform them in the optimal setting in Eretz Yisrael. So how are we to understand this in light of the clear halachic policy that non-agricultural Mitzvot are obligatory in Chutzpah Aretz just as in Eretz Yisrael. So the Ramban, quoting Rashi, asserts that this Midrash represents a Sod Amuk, a deep secret, and alludes to his commentary elsewhere, which says, Ikar kol mitzvot ba'aretz, all mitzvot apply principally to those who dwell in the land. He says land of God, I'm not sure whether that's true. It's the land. But how exactly does this clarify our issue? It doesn't. It just tells you to look up somewhere else where it'll be equally unclear. So the, mar- the Maral in Gur Aryeh quotes Ramban and says, I will reveal the secret. He explains that certainly all mitzvot that are chavot haguf, actions that do not have to do with the land, apply in chuslaris as well as in Eretz Yisrael. However, the reason they were commanded in chuslaris is so that they will not be new to us when we return to Eretz Yisrael. I'm not sure what that clarified. It's, it begs the theological question. So why does God... Right? So really it's just practice. But it's commanded practice. Okay, nice. So you can still feel there's... Pardon? Yes, exactly. There's no intrinsic, they sort of have no intrinsic significance in Chutzlaris. Right? They're just there, they're just, it's really still just there as practice. So I don't know, I, you know, I, I never know how God keeps score. Right? But, but I would say the, the strongest version is that when you're in Eretz Israel and you put on fillin, so the action of putting on fillin has all this deep symbolic resonance. But when you do it in Chutzlaris, all it is is, well, I better, I, I need to know to do it, so when I get there with Israel, now maybe God rewards you equally or not, but it makes the whole action, right, much less meaning. When I say, right, I betroth you, what I'm doing is, I'm engaged in the practice run-through of the wedding. Right, nobody actually gets engaged. Right, this is just the practice to make sure that next week when we walk down the aisle, we don't trip on the, uh, right, on, <laughs> yes. Yes. That the individual still has the values for their own perfection, but there's no communal value outside of Israel. Interesting explanation. I can't tell you yes or no. That's right. interesting. Not what Ramban says. I don't think. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. But since I don't know what Ramban says, <laughs> I will have to uh, play it out. Rabbi Sid concludes Rabbi Khan, and Rabbi Khan does basically exactly says this. Right? He says that every mitzvah has the actual content of the mitzvah and the fact of being mitzvah. And so in Chutzlaris, we have, right, we're mitzvah, but the mitzvahs have no intrinsic meaning. And there he has this beautiful chaf. He says that the Ramban says the Avos only fulfilled mitzvot in Eretz Yisrael because the Avot were not mitzvah. They weren't commanded. So it made no sense to keep mitzvot in Chutzlaris because they weren't keeping mitzvot of command. They were only keeping mitzvot because they found mitzvot intrinsically meaningful. And Chaim says because the mitzvot connected to the root of their soul. But that was meaningless in Chutzlaris. So right, that's why the Avot didn't keep didn't keep it for the Chutzlaris. There we go, right? So therefore, right? So therefore, Rabbi Siv concludes. So now we should all understand that we should all, right? Yom Atzmud is our chance to live life, right? To live life as real Jews, not as practicing Jews. We can actually go to the wedding, um, but here in Chutzlaris, there is nothing but practice. Okay, I think that's a very good presentation of the um, of the simplest reading, the chat. Of the um, of uh, of the Sifri and the Ramban, 
Um, and I react to it the same way Rabbi Seb did when someone came over to him and said, like, I don't really like thinking that my mitzvot and chutzlarot are just for practice. Uh, I like to think the actions are meaningful. So the question is, but is if he really says this? Um, so the right, Ramban does really cite it in all sorts of places. So the question is, is there a way of understanding what is going on in the Sifri and in the Ramban that does not yield the that, that lets us say more than the Tzvot and Chutzlaras are just for practice? Yes? So how would they deal with all the Mitzvot that the Nisham got in Mitzrayim and the 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 Mitzrayim so even in practice, you're 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 really not practicing. Well, I don't know. There may be real punishments, right? In, in, yeah. So we're we're doing training, 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 training exercises with live ammunition. Yeah, that's good. All right. So I want to first. I want to I want to do a um, I want to do a, a number of things to try and complicate. Uh, try and complicate this whole idea, going through all the sources that Rabbi Siv cited and seeing if they seem clearly to indicate what he meant, and then throw in a whole bunch of other sources and one clincher and see if, right, and see if I can make a counter-argument, which, by the way, probably will be more upsetting to you than Rabbi Siv. I'm just going to warn you in advance. Many of you will probably be much, much happier with the sphere of the way it is now than you will be when I'm, right, than you will be when I'm done. Um, okay, so Rashi, Rashi says, and the very right, uh, Rashi picks up grammatically, right, that the different tenses of Shemo and Tishmu. We always have this issue of the, um, I'm sure you know what it is, right? The something infinitive or something like that? <laughs> right, I forget what it's called. When you have this further structure, Shemo and Tishmu, so there's always the question, whether it's just a grammatical idiom or whether it really is, right, you have to be, make it meaningful every time. So Rashi here makes it meaningful and he says, that if you listen, to the, right, if you listen, the yeshan, listen to the new, the new, but even though there are old mitzvot and new mitzvot, you should listen to both of them, the chol yom, you be'inecha kechadashim, right, they should always be, mitzvot should always be new to you. Now that's interesting to me, because we just learned why should we do mitzvot and chuslaris? So they shouldn't be, right, so they shouldn't be new to you. So we have to, right, this whole notion that the reason to do mitzvot is so they shouldn't be new to you is really problematic because mitzvot are always supposed to be new to you. And, and Rashi happily goes on, right, in, in uh, right, five seconds later and says the reason you should do these mitzvot is so they won't be new. So if just in Rashi, right, somebody has to explain to me how in Pasuk Yud Gimel, Rashi says that, the, right, that Shemot Tishmuel says mitzvot should always be new to you and in Pasuk Yud Shed, he tells you you have to do mitzvot and chutzlaris so that they won't be new to you. Yes? Okay. There is, and I'm open to the possibility. It makes the psychological claim that this isn't the choice. I think that you can do something and routinize it, and the fact that you have routinized it does not in any way diminish your excitement and inspiration about it. Right? So that's an interesting claim. 
So, 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 well, that's why Rashi seems to say you have to have it both ways, right? Rashi says, right. So that's, I'm just pointing out it's not obvious to me that, that you can have it both ways. Right? That you can have it both ways. Right? It's, it's described explicitly as routinization. And the notion that you can have routinization without some kind of concomitant loss of mm-hmm. the experience of newness, that's the Chiddush. Yes. I don't know if it's not. I think it's a, it's a. I think teachers are constantly trying to say, "Well, I have to do something different today," because otherwise, right? Because if you're just doing exactly what what you did, right? That's why I picked this year for here that I haven't given in a long time, right? Because if I just huh. taught the same shear that I taught last week, it wouldn't be as exciting to teach it to you as a shear where I don't know how it's going to end. Right. So okay, I, it's not a terrible contradiction. It's just a tension. Yes. Okay, good. So we can say that as long as we distinguish sharply between routinization as practice and the moment when it's real, right, right. That's right. That's part. The problem is that you know that you get to Israel and you do the same mitzvot over and over again. Right? So now they're not practiced anymore. You're still doing the same mitzvot over and over again in Eretz Israel. So it only works for the first time you put on tefillin in, in Eretz Israel. <laughs> uh, okay, so I want to take a look now at the shoot at the shoot red buzz. So red buzz, red buzz says, um, quoting right, he qu- he quotes this Rashi. He says, "You you asked me." Rashi says that um, that you should do mitzvot to keep them to keep so they won't be new to you even in Chutzlaris. Why? Right, same question we that we had or Basif had. These mitzvot are mitzvot of chovat they're obligations on the body and on the land, so why shouldn't you have to keep them? So here is Radvaz's attempt to disambiguate. He says, you ha- it was necessary to caution them that even though these mitzvot are chovat haguf, that they should not remove themselves, the, the, remove the yoke of mitzvot, and burden themselves the yoke of mitzvot, owing to the pressure of the oppression of the exile and persecutions, as accused in the days of the Greeks and Chaldeans, the wicked Edom, and all the generations that had decreed against them to be mitzvot mitzvot. And it is possible that under coercion they would be mivatel the mitzvot, they would be anusim, kimitata ones, yivat luotam. He commanded upon them they should be distinguished from the mitzvot so they would not be new upon them when they returned, and they would find it bothersome to perform them. So he's not cautioning them before they're exempt in chutzpahs, but rather it's the reason I wrote. So Abbas actually has two different arguments, and I'm not at all sure that either of them works. His first argument is you might think that in exile you're under compulsion. And in general, we say that, that ones rachmanai patre. Somebody who's under coercion is exempt for not keeping mitzvot. If somebody pulls a gun on you and tells you not to put on tefillin, you don't have to put on tefillin. So we might think that chutzlaris is just an ongoing state where people are putting, pulling, right, putting guns to your head and saying, don't put on tefillin. So the terrorist says, no, that you can't do that. Right, just the, the condition of exile per se, and even the condition of persecuted exile, is not a good enough reason to stop doing mitzvot. Right, so that's why, that doesn't tell you anything about the new part, that just tells you why we have to bother telling you to do mitzvot and chutzlaris, even, because even if they're legally binding in principle, because they're obligations on the body and not obligations on the land, but you might think that you're exempt because of coercion. I, I give you a real interesting case about this, because we think of it, we're in America, we're kind of wealthy, we don't think of this as a given. 
But in the, um, during the Depression, Rechaim Hershenson, who at that point was recognized as a great Pesach, suggested that it was mutter to go to work on Shabbos. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you didn't go to work on Shabbos, you would lose your job. He suggested as a limit post-facto, that people shouldn't be considered Shabbat, Shabbat violators because they would lose their job and they would starve. Well, how come they A lot of people go to work afterwards. Yeah. Well, that's assuming they have a nine-to-five job. But yeah, this is I mean, <laughs> Shabbos, Hashkamim. Yes, but I'm saying, but as soon as you can go to work at nine on Shabbos, you have some meets at, maybe meets at seven. Yeah. But lots of people in the Depression had jobs that started at seven. Yeah, I know. Right? So I just point out, right? So, you know, it's going to make a very reasonable argument that the condition of oppression in Slytharis just makes it unreasonable to expect us to keep me so. So God says, don't apply the normal conditions of compulsion to diaspora. The, 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 the default setting of the diaspora is not considered to be exemption from its foot. But then Rabbi says, that doesn't explain the line about so they should be new to you. So he says, well, the reason for that is because if you don't keep doing mitzvot, when you come back to Eretz Yisrael, they'll feel like there's new imposition on you. Now, you'll feel like your freedom is being restricted. And we don't want you to think that Eretz Yisrael is a prison and the diaspora is the real, right, where Eretz Yisrael is the, right, is outside the asylum and the rest of the world is the asylum. For those of you who are Douglas Adams fans. So, uh, right, since we don't want you to think that, so we make you, right, so we build big bar, we ask you to big, build big steel bars around yourself in close bars also. So when you get to Eretz Yisrael, you'll just say, oh, I, I've always lived in a cage. Right, that's basically his argument. Right, so it will seem bothersome to you unless you're used to them. So keep it, right, and that way when you get to Eretz Yisrael, you'll think that Eretz Yisrael is annoying. So, right, so we make you keep it. So in the Chutzlaretz, right, because imagine if you could eat whatever you wanted in Chutzlaretz, mm-hmm. right, bacon double cheeseburgers every day to get to Eretz Yisrael, and we say no, <laughs> right, no basar b'chalav. Who wants to move to Eretz Yisrael? Hi. <laughs> yeah. That's also that's a good argument. That's right. We should say no. Eretz Yisrael, joy. We get to keep its food. Right? They'll be new to us. Exactly right? This is the wrong idea. Right? What God should do is not not have us do mitzvot and chutzlar, right? So that when we get to Eretz Yisrael, we'll celebrate new mitzvot. Right? We get to Eretz Yisrael and we get to, we get to, right, we get to actually need hashkacha on fruits. Right? That's really exciting. Here we can pick up, right here, even if you go, you can now find no you on peaches, but really you can eat peaches without no you. But Eretz Yisrael, you can't. Right? You eat shrimp with some maestros. This is really exciting. Okay. Shemitah. Shemitah. Right? All these things, they'll be new to us and we'll be really excited about it. Okay, so I just point out, this is what Rabbah says. I'm not at all convinced that he has furthered our comprehension yeah. of the Midrash in a way which makes it sense. But, um, now the second thing Rabbi Siv uh, told us to look at was the Maral, the Gurayeh, who announces that, um, that he will reveal the secret to us. So that's a nice build-up. So here's what the, um, the, um, the, the um, Maral says. He begins by saying, right, In truth, Right, he says that there, right, there's a deep secret here. Vaniya Galeha and I will reveal the secret. So here we are, right? Safna Paneh. We are we are we are we are um we are, right, we are revealing we are revealing the revealing the secret. It would not have been fitting for 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 Israel to keep the mitzvot and chutzlaris. We're in the underlined Hebrew section now. Right, it would not have been fitting for Israel to keep the mitzvot and chutzlaris because Kevan Shahin Mishpat Elokeha Aris, because they are the law of the God of the land. Okay, this should be setting off theological alarm bells uh, for you. But if God had not given us to observe the mitzvot and chutzlaris just like he does in Aretz, then when we arrived afterwards in the Aretz, 
um, there would be a netinah chadasha. There would be a new giving of the mitzvot. Kevan shikvar nitpalua mitzvot chas v'shalom. Right. So the morale says that if you sh- if you, the mitzvot were not bi- were not binding in the diaspora, when you showed up in Eretz Yisrael again, God would have to command you again. Um, which I am translating as best I can as, but there is no, right, there can't be a new giving. But I admit that's a weak translation. Because the Torah has to be given by, right, the Torah, the Torah has to be given, um, was given by God once. No two givings of the Torah. Right, therefore, all mitzvot that are binding, the, that are applicable to the body are binding in Chutzvaret. Right, and when the Torah, when it's, the Sifri says so they won't be new, So Ramaral says, the reason it's better binding in Chutzvaret is so they won't be new, but not because we're worried about psychology, but because we're worried about theology. There cannot be new commandments. So if we didn't have some kind of continuity of Torah in Chutzvaret, there would have to be a new giving of the Torah. That can't be. So the reason we are keeping mitzvot in Chutzlaret is because we were incapable of thinking of the idea that the mitzvot are binding all the time in Eretz Yisrael, and we're not in, Chutz, in Eretz Yisrael. Right? So of course the mitzvot are still binding, and, it, and the Torah was, was given all along, just we're not in conditions to give the Torah. We couldn't think of that. So, I'm sorry, this is a little satirical, but let's play it again. Right? Rabbi, he really says that the reason we keep mitzvot in Chutzlaret is because otherwise... We would have a theological problem that it would, that it would seem to us or would really be that God has to command the mitzvot twice. Now, one of you has already thought of, but hang on a sec. Why isn't that true of the mitzvot haluyot barits, right? When we're in chutz laaretz, they're not, they're not binding. So the answer, best I can say, is, well, at least some part of Torah has to be binding all the way through or we lose the continuity. So we say, so why make all the mitzvot that are about Why not just say one mitzvah? Shatnas. Right. We'll all keep Shatnis in Eretz Israel and Chuzlars, and that will be the shred of continuity that keeps Torah going. And, but cheeseburgers, they're fine. Right. Why does God have to? Why does God have to impose cheeseburgers on us in Chuzlars? Now, I confess that I sat, um, I took a course in Haral with Professor Binyamin Shalom in Wayu many, many years ago, and the upshot of it was that. Um, he told us a story about sitting in a Beit Midrash in Yerushalayim and listening to a Chug and Maharal by somebody else and they did not get one sentence correct the entire time. And at the end of the course, I was fairly convinced that if I taught a Chug and Maharal, that is probably what would happen. I would not get a single sentence correct. And afterwards, I was privileged to hear somebody else get a Chug and Maharal in which they actually did not get one sentence correct. <laughs> so with all that, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know Narel functions on many, many levels of reality, and I am not capable of parsing which level of reality he's functioning on. The issue of how metaphors and reality relate in Narel, I am utterly defeated by it. So all I can tell you is it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me, this explanation. I don't know how it fits. Um, it seems to me to lead to... Ans- the, the, the cure seems a lot worse than the disease. And I... We'll get there. Uh, yes, it would be. So we'll get there. Very good. Very good. Okay. So now what I want to do is, having done all this background and having given you a completely unfair tour of all the previous attempts to explain it, now I want to go through Ramban. And let's find out what Ramban actually says. And then let's find, see if we can figure out what the secret is. If we're not convinced by 
Maral secret. The secret is we have to preserve the continuity of Torah. So there won't have to be new giving. So Ramban, uh, Ramban the, the first Ramban said, there's only English, there's only Hebrew on this one. Um, so Ramban starts by quoting, this is Ramban, the very Parakut Aleph Pasukus Chet. He says, he quotes the Sifri, right? Even after you get exiled, be distinguished with mitzvot, fillin, mezuzah, so that they won't be new to you. That's Rashi. And he says, I already wrote the explanation. The explanation is, these mitzvot are chavot haguf. They apply to the body and not the land. And then he says our line. He says, aval yesh b'midrash hazeh sod amuk. Amuk, right? There is a deep secret here. And then he tells you, and it's in the Sifri, and the Sifri does it from the consecutive of the Pesukim. Aval ikar hakatuv ba'aretz. But the, the, cent, the core of Torah is talking about Eretz Yisrael. Okay. So now we have learned, um, now we have learned nothing other than that there is a sod. What is this sod? So if you take a look now at Ramban Abreshit Perik Chavdal at Gimel, he tells you again, HaKadosh Baruch this is what Ramaral was referring to, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Eretz Yisrael. God is called the God of the land of Israel. The Yesh Sod. And there is a secret about this. And this is related to what the rabbi said, I'm just skipping the underline, I'm doing underlined passages. Hadar Somebody who lives in diaspora is as if they have no God. Ramban really says this. Chazal really said this. Right? And, he, and, right, and we're going to see that Ramban is very... Every time right, something like this shows up, Ramban says there is a sod, and the sod is connected to one of these astonishing things. So if you look at the next Ramban, he says, the Yesh binyan sod, Right, this is talking about Yaakov's, or when Yaakov talks to God, and he says, when I return to my father's house, the Hashem Lukim. So there's an old machloket, um, think about Rifkin has a beautiful word about this. When Yaakov says, the Hashem Lukim, is that, is that part of the condition? If God is my Elukim, right, that's the negative, then I will give him Masir. Or is, right, if I return to Eretz Yisrael, right, and then God will be my God. So Ramban takes it as, and then God will be my God. If you live in the Astra, you have no God. That's what Yaakov is saying, right? So, you're not going to be my God until I come back. Yes, but that's There is a secret here. Okay. Um, right, so you'll see that Ramban... Um, Ramban goes off into a completely different world, which I don't understand. And you'll see this over again. Ramban keeps on claiming that there is a connection. Yes. There is a great dispute about the meaning of, of Sod in Ramban. I believe that, um, who was it? Um, I read a really fun article once which argued that the, whenever the Ramban talks about Sod, it becomes deliberately incoherent because the point is just, right, the point is just, it's just a marker for people who know Kabbalah really well. They should know what he's referring to, but he has no interest in explaining anything to you. And that, it works, it works on me. <laughs> Whenever he says that, you know, it might as well be speaking Greek, as far as I'm concerned. So, I, right, there are some people who try and interpret the, the sod in Ramban and, and think that there's language there that really appoints you, and some people who think that the word sod just means, right, you know, that uh, abandon hope, all you non-capitalists to enter here. Um, 
Okay, so the, on the next page you'll see there's a whole series of places where Ramban connects the word Eretz Yisrael to the word Kol. Kili Kol Haaretz, Vashem Berachet Abraham Bakol. There's going to be, right, you'll see that there's a, that um, in the underlying section he says, there's Avalachirim Chitshu Bepirusha Katsu Bezeinyan Mok Ve'od Bedroshu Mizet Bezeh Sod. Ve'amru, and they said, Ki Bakol Tirmoz Al-Yan Gadol. And that is that God has a midah which is called kol, which is the asod hakol. And now we're again, we're all, but he connects this yomar because he gets because he has a pasuk in kohelot. This is what connects it. haaretz bakolhu. So that means yomar. This means to say ki yitron haaretz, the advantage of the land, ki bakolhu. So there is a connection between the sod of aretz and the sod of kol. Which plays out in all the in all the um, in all the remaining in all the rem- in all the remaining things. Now he tells you in Ramban and Perikuchet Pasuchatay he tells you what is probably the most astonishing and scary explanation of the Sod. What he tells you is that in Eretz right, so let's take a look at Ramban Perikuchet Pasuchatay. He says about Sod of the Var What's the Sod? Va'inyan ki Hashem anichbad baraha kol. God created kol. And he gave the potential force of the lower world into the hands of the upper world. And he set up the world so that each nation and area of land had its own astrological guide. And above these stars and planets, there were angels, who are in charge of the stars. were called kings. But God is on top of the hierarchy. This is the rest of the world. But in the land of Israel, this is the center of existence, of settlement, right? Right? So if it's Eretz Israel, God rules directly. Everywhere else, God rules through subordinate, right, through subordinate creations. We're skipping the next underlying section. So now in the diaspora, even though everything, Akol, is for the sake of God, you cannot have complete purity in Chutzlaret. You can never get really pure in Chutzlaret. That's why you become Tamei automatically when you go to Chutzlaret. Because you're always going to be contaminated by the the fact that God has God has delegated His power, and that inevitably leads to avodazara, because people human beings inevitably end up worshiping the intermediaries, mm. as opposed to as opposed to God Himself. Sounds like they should. Well, that's what we have to talk about. Asher Amim, Right? Whether that in fact is something that God has given all the other nations, but we should not fall into that because we're supposed to live in Eretz Israel, and now we go into the diaspora. But we can never get to what we really, really should be, right? Because Eretz Yisrael inana kishara aratzot inam mekemet avreavira 
Okay, so this is the this is the um, the, the true sod, right? I think the true sod the true sod of of this of this forumban is that God's relationship to the world is different in Eretz Yisrael than in the rest of the world, um, right? And therefore, in the rest of the world, it's as if you don't have a God, because you are right. You are subordinate. You are subject to subordinates. Okay, this is all quite astounding. This is right, this is probably worse than we started we started off. <laughs> okay, but now I might say something even worse. <laughs> okay, so now because I think that with all this, I don't think this is the proper explanation of why we do mitzvot nechuslaris. So we could come out of this saying, why do we do mitzvot nechuslaris? We do mitzvot nechuslaris because mitzvot are really expressions of our direct connection to God. Right. When you do mitzvah, when you're in chutzlaris, then you have no direct relationship to God. You have a relationship to the kochav and the malach. Yeah. So mitzvah have no interest. The only purpose of the mitzvah, right, is because we don't care about building a relationship with the kochav. Mm-hmm. We don't care about building a relationship with the malach. Mm-hmm. The only possible reason to do mitzvah in chutzlaris is because they are conveying God's command. Right. And even though while you're in chutzlaris, you have no hope of the direct relationship, but keep in practice because when you come to meet the king, you should be able to fulfill his commands. Right, that's what we would end up saying. That's the whole purpose. And really, religion in the diaspora is just practice. Or at best is a discipline. Right? And now it has a very useful pedagogic purposes because if kids in Chutzaris ask you and say, you know, I don't find this meaningful, right? Why, right? why should we wind, why should we put straps on and run black boxes? Yeah, I don't know either. If you were in Israel, you might, right, you would understand. But the Chutzaris, you're right, none of this has any psychological impact at all. We're just, uh, it solves one problem, it creates others that are um, perhaps, perhaps more severe. Okay, I want to read Ramban's introduction to Shemot with you. Um, here's what Ramban says. Scripture completed the, word, the book Breshit, Shehu Sefer HaYetira, which is the book of the formation, right, the book in which stuff gets made. Bechidosh Olam, right? So, right, so what is the what is the world of what is Breshit about? It's about the create the initiation of the world, of the universe. Bechirat Kol Notzar, and the right, and, and everything that exists is made. Uvu Mikrehavot, right? So here's this is Ramban's scheme of Breshit. Now we have the world, and then we have everything on the world, and then we have the forefathers, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Shehem Kinyan Yitzhiral is Aram, because the story of the forefathers is like the story of the creation, of our creation. Right? It's when we Jews came into existence. And Masei Avot Siman Lebanim for Ramban, so it's really true. The Pnei Kol Mikrehem, right, here we go, right, because all the things that happen to the Avot, to Yurei Dvarim, they are functioning as metaphors, they're illustrations, which will hint at and inform us of everything that will happen in the future. To us. Okay, that's Breshit. But after he completed the, the, the Torah completes this formation, it begins a new book. This book deals with This is the book in which the potential, the hints included in Sefer Breshit comes true. The beginning of them. Okay? And Tefer Shemot is about the first exile which was explicitly commanded, I believe, in the Brit Ben Abtarim, when God told Avram, That's what Shemot is about. Shemot is about the fulfillment of the 
command of exile, of the, the prediction of exile that happened in, that was in the Brit Um and in the redemption from it. And therefore, that's why it begins by listing all the Jews who went down to Egypt in their number. Even though that was already um, right, that was already mentioned back in Bereshit, because their descent is the beginning of the Galut, and that's what this book is about. This book is about the Galut that was foreshadowed in, in Bereshit, and the redemption from it. V'nei Galut, this exile, Einol Islam, is not completed. Ad-yom shuvam el-nikumam, until they return to their place. Ve'el-malak avotam yeshuvu, and to the heights reached by their ancestors. But when they left Egypt, even though they had left the house of slavery, they would still be in exile. Why? Because even after we leave Egypt, we are still in a land that does not belong to us. We're wandering in the wilderness. Okay. So when, when does the exile end? When do they get back to their place? And when they came to Mount Sinai, the Asu Hamishkan, and they built the tabernacle, the Shabbat Kadosh Baruch Hu Vishrashkinatam Benehem, and God, and God, um, and God returned and, right, and flowed, that's the best thing I can do, right, spread, spread His divine presence among them, as Shavu El Malot Avatam, that's when they returned to their ancestors' sites. That the sod, there we are again, the sod of God was on their tents. The Haim Haim Amarkava, and the four, right, the four of those are the chariot that God is upon. The Az Nechshivu Giulim, and then they were considered redeemed. And that's why Sefer Shmod ends where it does, because Sefer Shmod is the book about exile and redemption, and at the end of Sefer Shmod they have been redeemed. Where are they? In the Midbar. Yeah. But he says redemption only happens when you return to your place. Yeah. So, here is the thing. For Ramban, Eretz Yisrael is a metaphor. Eretz Yisrael is a state of mind. as a state of consciousness. And mitzvot are only meaningful when you live in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, right when you have that kind of when you have that kind of relationship with God, they thought the rest of the time are designed to right, prepare you for having a genuine religious experience. Right? I think that is the underlying. I think that's the underlying. That's the underlying secret all right, all the way through. Yes. Wherever you are, yes. Wherever God is, which is wherever you reach that level. They built a Mishkan. They built a Mishkan. No, no. God is there because they built a Mishkan. 
Not to do Mishkan because God was there. We could build it here. If we just, that's my point, right? Right here, right now. We could, right, if we just reached the proper spiritual level, this would be Eretz Israel. And the Mishkan would be built here. Yeah. So now the question, the question we have to, sorry, I'll just try to figure out where we are. Time by a second. Yes, I'm going to finish and then we'll take questions afterwards. So the question is, do we say Nikra Yosemi Deit Shuto? Or not? Is it just a metaphor? Or is it that Eretz Yisrael, in some way, is much more conducive? Right? In principle, we could have. We did once. It didn't work. Right? ego happens right afterwards. Right? So we, right, the story of Kamash could have ended in the desert if we hadn't sinned. There would have been no need to go to a physical place called Eretz Yisrael because we were in Eretz Yisrael. It didn't work. There's a reason that we pick Eretz Yisrael as the metaphor, right? So I suggest that for Ramban it's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that there has to be real meaning to Eretz Yisrael also, although we wouldn't understand why Eretz Yisrael was the metaphor for the state of mind in which we get there. Okay, last thing. Last thing. So we began, but now let's point out, right? So Ramban says that the book of Shemot ends where it does. Because the book of Shemot ends with them in Eretz Yisrael, even though they are not. Now, the question we started with was, why does Chumash end before the Jews get to Eretz Yisrael? And here's the answer. Because if Chumash ended when they got to Eretz Yisrael, it would be false. Because when they get there, they're not in Eretz Yisrael. They're just there physically. They're just there physically. They're not really there. So, because Chumash is a story about the redemption from, the true redemption from exile, so Chumash has to end with only the potential of getting to Eretz Yisrael because if we actually got there, if we got to Sefer Yoshua, it's pretty clear in Sefer Yoshua they're not in Eretz Yisrael. So Chumash has to end before they go into Eretz Yisrael because that's the only way of preserving Eretz Yisrael as a metaphor. All right, otherwise, right, otherwise Eretz Yisrael would be real. Okay, now I'll take questions. Yeah. Yeah. It is that. I mean, if you want to claim Eretz Yisrael is really true, you don't need you. You have direct hashkacha no matter what. Right. Well, not always though. Uh, right. The pushback against that is that you know, the Machlokes Shari Charashan, the entire language of calling, without actually have, having any label designation of Eretz Yisrael in terms of. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't think I'm arguing. I just think, I, th- I, know, I think in Ramban, I think, right, I think there's a powerful point. And I think that the way he reads Shemot is very telling about the way he reads Kumash as a whole. Right? Theologically, that you, can, you don't have to buy it. Um, yeah, you know, and you can decide whether this is... And really, a key thing is whether you think Amir Kravya Sebi David Shuto means, yes, this really is why Eretz is powerful, or this makes Eretz Yisrael just metaphor, so it's not enough. Right? How much, right, I'm open to any of those possibilities. 
maximum amount of forage under my trees. Otherwise, the agricultural folks wouldn't be required if they were not nationally. Okay, that's a good argument. That's a good argument.